Open the Word of God to Ephesians chapter 3. Our inspired and preserved scriptures and what they have to tell us about our Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God for all the men that have gone before. And I thank you men for all that you have said already this day. What a subject before us. We don't want to overcomplicate it. We don't want to over-lengthen it. We want to have sufficient to stir up our hearts and our minds. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The sentence doesn't end there, and we will come back to this lengthy sentence in a moment. Paul made it clear that we in our churches ought to esteem the Lord Jesus Christ most highly. He said, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He wrote, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to see Jesus and we want to see Him preeminent in all things. There were Greeks that came in John chapter 12, verses 12 and 21. They ran into Philip and they said, Sirs, we would see Jesus. And so Philip took them to Jesus. He is to have all the preeminence in all things. There are many subjects, even in the Bible, that can scratch the lust of itching ears, but not Christ. And so we want to emphasize Him. This past week, because of God's providence, I have spent much time in the history of our church, all the way back, of course, to John the Baptist, but I am bringing it from the 1820s forward, in which at a men's meeting in ten short days, we will consider those things in detail to give God the glory for how He has led us in three wonderful stages of blessing. But one of the things in which He has led us is to exalt Jesus Christ and to give Him all the preeminence and to let Him personally, Him in His works, Him in His graces, Him in His traits, Him in His characteristics exceed all other subjects for our minds and our hearts. We do not want to love the dear old church. We want to love the glorious Savior. We do not want to be in love with the dear old book. But the book directs us to love our Savior. We love the church. We love the Bible. But everything is to be directed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I am thankful that God has changed our emphasis over a long period of time to exalt Christ and to put down superfluous, distracting, unscriptural, 
studies and emphases that do not teach us about Christ. And we want to do that today. The universe exists as a stage for God to play out a drama for His glory that includes Jesus, the Son of God, saving you to be the adopted children of the Most High. What a drama. This subject is the greatest measure of your soul. And if you find this boring and dull, you are dead in one of two ways. You are dead spiritually and need to be born again, or you are dead practically and you need to arise from the dead, as Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 14 teaches. What hinders you today? Brethren, What hinders you today from loving Him and from loving Him more? Is He not enough? He has not done enough? Has He not saved you from enough? Has He not won enough for you? Has He not promised enough yet to come? You have found better fellows to love and admire than Him? You're foolish. You stand in danger of serious judgment. Matthew chapter 22, a great king made a feast and invited his nation of Israel to it, and they made light of it. And so he sent his armies and killed those murderers and burned up their city. And then he sent his servants, the apostles and prophets of the Lord Jesus Christ, out into the highways to find some to make a company for the wedding feast of his son. And he found us by the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Ministers are supposed to bring forth things new and old. Do you still love the old, old story? As we sing it in that song, will you choose today with me? to embrace Jesus Christ anew with mental attention and heart affection like we haven't before? Will you lay hold of Him by faith and love and say with our beloved brother Paul on the road to Damascus, Lord, what wilt Thou have me to do? And then let us turn unto Him and serve Him with all the zeal that Paul did. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The context of our verse is wonderful. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, most of which were read to us, describe the election and predestination by the will of God to place us in Christ Jesus before the world began to make us accepted in the beloved. Most pulpits today will be teaching that you need to accept Jesus to make Him beloved. We understand that God chose us in Christ and made us acceptable to Him in love. When you get to heaven, the issue will not be whether you accepted Jesus or not. The issue will be whether God has accepted you or not. And He can only accept us in Jesus Christ, His beloved Son, and that is according to the good pleasure of His will. 
Because the Bible says, So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That electing grace is found in the first 14 verses of this chapter. Then, in verses 15 through 23, we have presented to us the need by Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church to fully appreciate the benefits of that great salvation. He says in verse 17 that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. We want to know more about Christ. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. We want to have our eyes open to some things. That ye may know, and here's a short list, what is the hope of His calling? What is the future expectation of the grace of God in Christ? And what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? How rich will your inheritance be in heaven? You are to know it. The Bible is written for that purpose. And what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe? According to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. It took the same power to regenerate us from a state of death in trespasses and sins by verses 1-3 through of chapter 2, as it took to raise the Lord Jesus Christ in His dead corpse, From the tomb. The same mighty power. And we should know that. That to believe on Christ is the evidence. And it is the result. And it is the consequence of exceeding great power that's been shown toward us. That exceeding great power is described in the first ten verses of Ephesians chapter 2. As being quickened from death in trespasses and sins. To be quickened is to be made alive. When the Bible refers to the quick and the dead, it's referring to those that are alive and those that are dead. The stuff under your fingernail is called the quick because if I stick a straight pin far enough under your fingernail, you will know that it is alive. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. And that's described there in those ten verses. We are his workmanship. We are not the workmanship of evangelists. We're not the workmanship of preachers. In this particular vital context of our salvation, we are His workmanship created. I can't create. Parents can't create. Organists can't create. Evangelists can't create. Deacons can't create. Jesus Christ creates all things. And He creates them by the power of His life-giving voice. In chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, the second half of that chapter describes... The mercy that God had toward Gentiles by uniting them with His chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, into one body by Christ, so they are no more twain. We don't, we do not follow Jewish fables in this church because they are no more twain, but one body. We are the seed of Abraham. If we were to read Galatians chapter three, where it says, The promises were made to Abraham and his seed. He saith not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And then in the 29th verse of the same chapter, And if ye be Christ, 
Then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We're the seed of Abraham. We don't take up donations and send money to the Middle East for F-16s for those who don't deserve the land any more than the Arabs living around them. We had read to us from Hebrews chapter 13 that we have no continuing city on this earth. Did you hear that? No continuing city here, but we do have a continuing city and we are part of it and it's in heaven. The Mount Zion and Jerusalem that is above, which is the mother of us all. All because of Christ. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Is He not enough of a conquering prince for you? Is He not enough of a royal lover for you? What is your problem? You're tired this morning? You're distracted this morning? Why? You will give an account for this day. You will give an account why your heart isn't stirred, why your mind isn't lifted up about the Son of God and the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can get away with it and play with it now, but there's a God in heaven that will remember every time you didn't pay attention when His Son was lifted up, when the High King of Heaven was presented and you made light of it by dozing, by daydreaming, by reading your songbook, by reading your Bible. You'll give an account of it. But enough warning for the moment. Let praise break forth. Jesus Christ is Lord and He's our Savior and our King. He's our brother and He's not ashamed to call us brethren to the gathered universe in a day that is coming soon and before God His Father, the God of all flesh. In Ephesians chapter 3, the first seven verses, the Apostle Paul tells us that he had the privileged role of being the Apostle to the Gentiles by the grace of God in Christ. He understood the mystery that had been kept hid from the foundation of the world about how the Gentiles would be folded into the same body with the Jews better than any other apostle. And it was his job to declare it. And then in verses 14 through 21, which close out this chapter, we have the fabulous witness that the apostle prayed for for the Ephesians that the Holy Spirit, by His mighty power, working with us in our inner man, would show us the knowledge of Christ that passes knowledge, showing us the four dimensions of Christ's love in verses 18 and 19, until we are filled with all the fullness of God. That is the potential goal. That is what we strive for. That is what you want for yourself, for your spouse, and for your children. To be filled with all the fullness of God. And we get there by praying to God to send His Spirit and to show, to so show us the love of Christ that we will be filled with all His fullness. I have prayed this week, last night, this morning, for your souls, that my Lord, who has loved you with an everlasting love, if you're His, would draw you with the cords of kindness to Himself. What hinders you from loving the Lord Jesus? The inclusive sentence of our sermon title has its own context. Let me now read you the sentence that begins at verse 8. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, 
to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Verse 9, to make all men see what is the fellowship. Ephesians 3.9 is the Apostle Paul's commission and charge and ordination as an apostle to preach particularly to the Gentiles, but to the Jews as well, some of them, that there was a fellowship of Jews and Gentiles now in one body that had been hid in God from the foundation of the world. It was his job to show that Jesus Christ, by the blood of his cross, had taken out the enmity between the two parts of the human race so that they were now in one body, in fellowship together. That's the ninth verse. The tenth verse, that this event and Christ coming and his unsearchable riches in salvation have an intent. This is the drama. This is the drama of the universe. To the intent that the principalities and powers in heavenly places, that the elect and holy angels in heaven would have an object lesson of redemptive love that they have never experienced nor their fallen comrades have ever known. By the church. That is the passive treatment of the church by God loving and saving and redeeming the church by His only begotten Son. Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. It never says that in the Word of God about any of the angels. And so this verse is telling us that the intent of the drama of the unsearchable riches of Christ is to give the angels a demonstration of the perfections of God's great character and nature, of His love for His people, not for them, but by the church. The manifold wisdom of God, the many-faceted wisdom of God in coming up with this grand design and drama of salvation. It's for the angels to behold. And Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.12 that they desire to look into these things. Verse 11, this is an eternal purpose which He has purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. The bringing in of the Gentiles was not an afterthought. It was a perpetual part of His plan. Known unto God are all His works from the foundation of the world. Acts 15 and verse 18, and then this 11th verse here. Verse 12, In whom, that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, the last four verses of verse 11, look at verse 12, In whom we have boldness. He is writing Gentiles in the church of Ephesus, Asia in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of Him. With faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can go boldly into the very throne room of God at the feet of Almighty God and beg His blessing upon you. With boldness, you have access to heaven with confidence that was never had before. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that under the ordinances of the first covenant, Only one man, one time a year, without and not without blood, could go into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. But we get to go there any time we choose because we have access with confidence. And we have boldness 
And it's all because of Christ, because it says, in whom? This is part of the unsearchable riches of Christ, that He has paved a road. He has paid a way through His own flesh to be in the very presence of the living God. And to do it boldly, because we are His sons and daughters, by predestinated adoption through Christ Jesus our Lord. And then Paul tacks on verse 13 before he starts his prayer in verse 14. Wherefore, I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations with that list of blessings that I just gave you. Quit worrying about me. The fact that I'm in prison, the fact that I'm troubled, the fact that I have tribulations is your glory because it's my pleasure to preach to you the unsearchable riches of Christ. And that's your glory. Okay, Paul, thank you, brother. Thank you, Paul, for doing all that you did in the service of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now let's look at the eighth verse. Unto me, that is the Apostle Paul, who am less than the least of all saints, in light, in light and in comparison of the unsearchable riches of Christ, the Apostle Paul does not write, who am not le- who am not less than the chiefest of the Apostles. Does Paul ever say that? Absolutely he says that. I am not a whit less than the chiefest of the apostles. But he doesn't say that here. Here, in light of the unsearchable riches of Christ and the glorious privilege of preaching those riches to Gentiles, he said, unto me who am less than the least of all saints. He denigrates himself in light of the fabulous subject at hand. The gift that Paul had was the gift of the ministry to declare these things to the Gentiles by the grace of God. Rather than a few sheep of the lost house of Israel, Paul got to preach and Paul got to pen words to millions upon millions upon millions of Gentiles about the unsearchable riches of Christ. The least of all nations, Peter and John and the others dealt with. The rest of the nations, Paul got as the apostle to the Gentiles. The subject matter of God sending Jesus Christ even for us Gentiles is and was, was and is stupendous and glorious. And so we come by looking at three chapters that end with an amen. Ephesians 1 through 3 ends with glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. What a context. Now we have our words. The unsearchable riches of Christ. You have God's ass for your pastor. And I love being God's ass. And I shall honk my horn to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Unsearchable. That cannot be searched into so as to be ascertained or exactly estimated. Inscrutable. Inscrutable means that cannot be searched into or found out by searching. Impenetrable. Unfathomable to investigation. 
quite unintelligible, entirely mysterious, but for what God's revealed to us. It's the unsearchable riches. The Holy Spirit used the word unsearchable to describe the inscrutable nature of God. Always keep your Bible open to Ephesians 3, but we will be turning to some other places. Look at Job chapter 5 with me. A passage that we enjoy for its use of the word unsearchable. When something is unsearchable by the Bible use of the word, a subject or topic, it is so complex, deep, precious, and valuable that it defies complete explanation. It's a matter beyond human discovery, experience, imagination, or comprehension. But we will go as far as we can. And that's only going to be as far as the Bible allows us. And the Bible directs us. As our brother in the back room this morning wanted to tell you, our brother Zach, he said that Paul saw and heard some things in the third heaven that were not lawful for him to speak. The Apostle Paul, when writing Hebrews 9, said, as he got to the cherubim overshadowing the mercy seat, he said, we cannot now speak particularly about these things. That's the presence of God, and there's more and more to be revealed. We're in an early chapter of what you're going to learn about God and Christ. And when we get to heaven, those chapters will open before our eyes, and we shall see things that eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man or his imagination the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. That's what's coming. It is the unsearchable riches of Christ. We are Bible Christians. This is a Christian church. And we will exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not you go home this day without laying hold of Christ by faith, without confessing and professing Him, without speaking of Him, without thanking Him. You are a fool. You're dead. Arise. Christ shall give thee light. Job chapter 5, verse 8. I would seek unto God, and unto God would I commit my cause, which doeth great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. And he goes on to describe God's providence in the rain, and how he disappoints the devices of the crafty, and overturns his enemies, and makes them into idiots. As 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 3 Quote this passage for us. But back there to verse 9, who doeth great things and unsearchable. When we study the nature of God, we arrive at all these different aspects of Him that we can only know part of. Because He's infinite. Our God is infinite. He does many things unsearchable. We do not understand how a child and bones of a child are formed in a womb. Psalm 139 tells us that, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And we do not understand that, nor do we understand the way of the Spirit in the world. There are things that we don't understand. Because it's unsearchable. Look at Psalm 145 in verse 3. Psalm 145. Unsearchable. In verse 3. Great is the Lord. Psalm 145, 3. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. Do you love the text? 
Psalm 145 is a wonderful text. The Lord is great. He deserves great praise. And you will never exhaust His greatness. And so it's a subject that can entertain our hearts and entertain our minds with spiritual pure entertainment as long as we're alive. And then we'll be taken to the real show. When the Lord reveals Himself to us with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on all them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, when He shall come to be admired in that day. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Let's look at the word unsearchable from this angle. God's saving grace in Christ transcends human experience human learning, and human imagination. So that it says in verse 18 that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith in verse 17 that we may be able by only by Holy Spirit power to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. Unsearchable. It passes human knowledge. This is one way that we can look at the word It passes human knowledge. It exceeds us. We can't get to its limit. We can't draw the lines of its extent because it goes beyond that. It is excessive. It is exceeding. Look at chapter 2 and verse 7 of this epistle to the Ephesians. 2-7, that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches. When something is unsearchable, that means it surpasses or exceeds the capacity for understanding or searching. And so we have the word here in verse 7 of chapter 2 that in the ages to come, I won't be able to do it today, but I'm going to get you started, that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. It's all in Christ Jesus. If God's grace in Christ Jesus is unsearchable, it says that it is. Ephesians 3.8 If God's grace saving us in Christ Jesus is unsearchable, then it is also unspeakable. And so we have in 2 Corinthians 9.15 Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. If it's unspeakable, I'm very intimidated taking up the subject before you because it's unspeakable and it's unsearchable. But let's keep searching because He expects us whole. Search the Scriptures. For in them ye think ye have eternal life and they are they which testify of Me. So let's do a little searching. What in the world does the word riches mean? It means abundant wealth and means and valuable possessions. Our salvation in Jesus Christ is described as abundant wealth to emphasize its value. We want to think about the word value when it says unsearchable riches of Christ. The riches are its value. Christ's value to us. Christ's value as a person, Christ's value as a Savior, Christ's value as a conqueror, Christ's value as a priest, 
as a prophet, as our friend, as our brother, as the head of our church, as the cornerstone of our church. The riches that are in Christ. It includes the benefits, the glory, the prestige, and the security that's implied in the word riches and wealth. If you're rich and you have wealth, you have benefits, glory, prestige, and security that the poor do not have. But we, if though we be poor in this world, as James chapter 1 describes, we are rich in Christ. And who cares about the poverty level in this world? We are the sons of God, and all things are ours. The word riches is used in our context. We had it in verse 7 of chapter 2. We have it in verse 4 of chapter 2. But God, who is rich in mercy, it's not a little bit of mercy. It's not a little bit of pocket change. It's not a little bank account. It's the universe. It's an infinite God showing great mercy toward all of us. Rich in mercy. Chapter 1 and verse 18, we've already read it, that you might know the riches of His inheritance in the saints. Let's get that correctly. The last part of verse 18, the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. So riches is used. And we can look at other verses that speak of riches like verse 7 of this first chapter in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. And we are not talking about the riches of bankrupt men like Donald Trump. We are not talking about the riches of Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. We are talking about the riches of Jehovah God. The riches of His grace. We are abundantly rich today by knowing Christ and having been saved by Christ and Him having sought us out and Him having our names engraved in the palm of His hand and our names being written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world and Him going to the cross for us and Him interceding for us perpetually at the right hand of God. He will own us as His brethren. We are rich in Christ. It is the unsearchable riches of Christ. The little preposition of, I could give you a grammar lesson right now about the importance of an objective genitive phrase or a subjective genitive phrase. The words of Christ do not have to mean that it is something Christ owns. It is what we have in Christ. It is what we have through Christ because it's an objective genitive construction, but that is not good for this time. We will just move on by saying to you, the preposition teaches us that the riches of God's grace to us in our salvation are by the Lord Jesus Christ. These are our riches that Paul got to preach among the Gentiles. Their riches secured by Jesus Christ through the grace of God. Who is Christ to us? The fourth word of our phrase. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Who is Christ to us? Christ. The New Testament word is the Old Testament word, Messiah. There are only two occurrences of Messiah in the Old Testament. They are in the 70 weeks prophecy of our brother Daniel. In Daniel 9, 24 through 27, there were 70 weeks of years and there would be 69 weeks until Messiah 
was anointed. When was Jesus anointed? He was anointed with the Holy Ghost at his baptism by his cousin John. After 483 years, in approximately 26 A.D., Jesus was baptized by his cousin John, anointed from heaven by the Holy Ghost, and went forth on his three and a half year ministry because he was cut off in the midst of the 70th week. In that place, it says, 70 weeks to Messiah the Prince. When the New Testament uses the word Messiah, it's altered slightly to Messiahs. And there's two occurrences of those in the Gospel of John. And in both places we are told that is Christ. So we have words defined for us by our King James Bibles. That it's Messiah, the anointed Savior of God in the Old Testament called Christ, the anointed one of God in the New Testament. Their meanings are identical. The anointed Savior of God. Jesus is his personal name given to him by both parents. Joseph was his legal parent and he is called a parent in the King James Bible, though obviously not his biological parent because only God was that. The angel said in Matthew 1 to Joseph, thou shalt call his name Jesus. Gabriel said to Mary in Luke chapter 1, Thou shalt call his name Jesus. That was his personal name. He was known as Jesus of Nazareth because Jesus is the Greekized English form of Joshua. There were many Joshuas. He was Jesus of Nazareth. Thus, the Apostle Paul was called a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And that is not the denomination in America. For the last hundred years or so, the sect of the Nazarenes were the followers of Jesus of Nazareth. And a Nazarene is not a Nazarite. Jesus was not a Nazarite. That's why he loved the same fare of Melchizedek, and that's bread and wine. Enough about that. I didn't mean to get off so far, but I want you to think about the word Christ. We use it as as part of his name. We refer to him as Christ. We refer to him as Jesus Christ. We refer to Him as Christ Jesus. We refer to Him as the Lord Jesus Christ. He is referred to in the Bible as the Lord Christ. He's our Lord. And that's His position relative to us. He's our Lord. Jesus is His personal name. Christ is His office given to Him by God as the Anointed One from Heaven for us. And Lord is His headship over us. And we're thankful for all three of those names. He is the reigning son of David. He's appropriately called Lord. He's the word of God made flesh. He's our substitutionary savior. He is the mighty God. He is more personal than any person you have ever met. Every one of us have shields up to protect ourselves in varying degrees, in varying ways from those around us. Some unconscious, some subconscious, some very conscious, but not him. He has given us His name. His name is repeated. We use His name. We invoke His name. When we call upon Him, there is a personal relationship that we are calling upon. He is incredibly intimate with us. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knew your name, wrote it in His book before the world began in His divine nature of the Word of God. 
The Lord Jesus Christ knows us and we know Him. He loves us and we love Him. He just knew us first, loves us first. And in the end, it's going to be His knowledge of us and His love of us that counts when we stand before God. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. Do you want a sure foundation upon which to live and to die? The Lord knoweth them that are His. He's going to say to most, I never knew you. The Lord knoweth them that are His. And how were they His? Given to Him before the world began by the electing rich grace of Almighty God, His Father and our Father. What is the unsearchable riches of Christ? May I paraphrase it for you? I'm supposed to preach this way. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. Nehemiah 8.8 So what is the unsearchable riches of Christ? It is the glory of the person of the Son of God full of grace and truth and preeminent above all others. What is the unsearchable riches of Christ? It is the value and worth of God's grace to save sinners by Jesus Christ, the Savior. It is the esteem, honor, praise, and wealth that belongs to Jesus for being that Savior. It is the incomprehensible transaction to adopt rebels as the sons of God by Jesus Christ. It is the full measure of an eternal inheritance and all that involves by Jesus Christ. It is the full, it is the supreme power and value of Christ's saving work to fully save all the elect. The unsearchable riches of Christ. It includes all the facets of salvation, which are a similar study from another angle. It is a salvation of only men to impress angels and cause their curiosity. It is the unsearchable riches. You are rich beyond the ability to count it. Unsearchable riches. Unquantifiable wealth. Abundant wealth. Abundant assets in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's try a little economic theory. The thing considered are the unsearchable riches of Christ. The thing considered and estimated here in our weak attempt to estimate it is God's grace in Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Economic theory says the value of a thing is determined and estimated by what is given in exchange for it. What do we have in Christ Jesus? God, Jehovah, I am that I am, gave His only firstborn, preeminent, begotten, well-beloved Son to the abuse and torture of a cruel trial and a crucifixion death. Now what are the riches of Christ? What did God give in exchange? He gave His Son for us to have those riches. Keep listening. The value of a thing is your cost for not having it. 
What you deprive yourself of by not having a thing is one way by which you can determine or estimate what that thing is worth is the cost to you of not having it. What is the cost to us of not having Christ? Eternal torment or adoption in heaven. And they are not the same. There is a middle ground that we do not get as the sons of God. We are saved from hell and we are given adoption in heaven. The loss is the loss of heaven, the loss of adoption, and separation from God under eternal torment in the lake of fire. If the value of the riches of Christ is determined by the cost of not having Christ, they are unsearchable riches. Because how can we measure the consequences of an eternity in hell or the blessings of an eternal existence as the sons of God? These are the riches of Christ. This is not the MVP of the Super Bowl. This is not getting a triple crown in baseball. This is not a hole in one. This trumps all those as light trumps darkness. The value of a thing is what you can get for it. The value of a thing is if you take it and say, you know what, I'm going to see what I can get for this. What did Jesus get for coming and dying for us? Jesus saved us from earth and death, hell and the devil. The value of a thing is its intrinsic value, lest your cost to obtain it. But these rich, now wait a minute, did, did you understand that? The value of a thing is its intrinsic value, lest your cost to get it. Do we dilute the unsearchable riches of Christ by what we contributed toward? No, we don't. We didn't contribute a thing. There is nothing to deduct from the unsearchable riches of Christ because it's all of God and all of Christ that we are saved. There is no deduction for our cost. It is all at God's cost and expense that we are saved by Christ. The value of thing is what greater experts think of it. You can take it even on trial and have experts in that field come in to estimate the value. Do you know who the experts are in this estimation? The holy angels of God. All the way up to Michael, they desire to look into these things. They cannot believe that the riches of God's grace are so exceeding abundant toward us sinner, sinful men. Rebel enemies. He passed right over all their fallen comrades, including Lucifer himself, to save us. The value of a thing is what it costs the supplier of it. God gave His beloved Son. There's a floor to the price of gold. The floor to the price of gold is the average cost of production out of gold mines. It's very difficult for gold gold to fall below that level. If it falls below that level, then gold mining companies will use their capital to buy gold in the free market until the price of gold rises above the cost of mining it. There's a floor. And there's a floor to the cost and the value of the riches of Christ because what did it cost the supplier? God had to give His only begotten Son. The value of a thing is the benefit you gain by having it joint heir with the King of Heaven. The value of a thing is its rarity and its supply. You have something that is one, one of a kind, event forever. There are no other alternatives. There are no other saviors. There is no other salvation. 
It is the unsearchable riches of Christ. The value of a thing is its complexity and difficulty. The value of a thing is in... Listen, a, a Rolex has a little more going for it than a Timex. It's the, it's the complexity of a thing and the wisdom necessary to create it. You know, if the marble in your bathroom was poured into a mold because it was first ground to powder, turned into mud, and then poured into a mold, it ain't worth much. But if you have a solid piece of granite pulled out of a mountainside, carved by a craftsman, it's worth much more. Do you know what the Word of God says about your riches in Christ? It says it in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 8, wherein He hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. The value of a thing is known and estimated by the complexity and difficulty of it, and it took the power and wisdom of God, and He abounded toward us in salvation in all wisdom and prudence. Right. Ephesians 1.8 The value of a thing may be estimated by how easily others may get it. There is no means nor cost that you can pay, nor price that you can pay. Nothing in my hands I bring simply. To thy cross I cling. Is it unsearchable riches of Christ by economic theory? Well, I'm not done. The value of a thing is its certainty of implied benefits guaranteed over all foes. God blessed forever. Amen. Amen. The value of a thing is what you must pay for it. If you don't have it, eternal torture without sonship. Much more could be said. Much more will be said when we come back after our break. Right now, please take your burgundy hymnals and turn to 174. And we're going to sing that it is well with our souls because what is in verse 3. Because of what is in verse 3. But we'll sing all four verses. Brother Newell, come and lead us, please.